this man just too that you are that God. You are not the God that some of these nations serve that we have been reading about in the Old Testament. The ones who demanded much and gave nothing. The ones who are unreliable, who are fickle, who are cruel. You are a good and gracious God. We know that you are also just. We know that you are holy. That you are merciful and you are gracious. You are all of these things all of the time. My prayer for these next few moments is that we would be able to set aside all of the distractions and cares of our lives, all of the things that weigh on our hearts and minds, that we would be able to simply hear your voice as we look into your word this morning, that we would be able to see what it is that you are saying to us. Father, would you, by your Holy Spirit, take your word, minister it to our heart, minister it to our hearts, make it exactly what we need to hear this morning. I understand that every person here is an individual. I know that every person has their own struggles, questions, doubts, fears, thoughts. But you are the one alone who knows each one, can calm each fear, who can answer each question, who can reassure amidst each doubt. We believe that or we would not be here. And so, Father, may we glorify you in these next few moments, and we, may we also hear your voice. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks, folks. You can have a seat. By my count, 15 Sundays in a row with no rain on Sunday morning. I was talking to Jay for a few minutes before we started, and he said, and I said that, and he said, I know, that's awesome. I can't wait to see how he holds the snow back. So, uh, yeah, we'll see, how, we'll see how that goes here in a, I don't know, probably a couple weeks, the way things change weather-wise around here. I was thinking the other day about one of the most well-known verses in the Bible. I bet almost everybody here is at least somewhat familiar with it. It's Philippians 4.19, and Paul says, My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful verse. And what a great promise. My God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. God can do that. I love that verse, and I know millions and millions of people around the world love it as well. But this week I was also thinking about buying more life insurance to care for my family. Now, how do those two work together? If Philippians 4.19 is true that my God will supply all of my needs according to his riches, he owns everything, everything is in his hands, and he will care for me and he will care for my family. And how do I balance that with wondering about buying life insurance? How do those two things go together? Am I... Showing a lack of faith by buying life insurance? Or am I presuming upon God when I choose not to? Well, believe it or not, that brings us to our series that we're working on here over the last several weeks, the last few months now. 
the whole story. And our book today is the book of Ezra, which is number 15, if you're keeping track. How many people are keeping track? No one. Okay, well, it's number 15 out of 66, only 51 more to go after this. And the verses that we're going to read together this morning advance the narrative that we're following. And the narrative that we are following is that the Bible is one story. That's why we called it the whole story. It's one story, even though we know for a fact that there are 66 different books. They were written by 40 different people. They were written over the span of 1,500 years. We know that it's one story. So what is the one story? The one story of the Bible is this, that God has chosen to glorify himself and display his grace by redeeming people. Now, I love this story. Personally, this is my favorite story. He has chosen to glorify himself and display his grace by redeeming people. So the question I want us to consider today over the next few minutes is this. If that's the story, and this is what God is doing, then what is our part? What is my part in all this? What is your part? If God does this, if this is his work, then what do we do? And this trickles down into all kinds of areas of our lives, like I was just talking about a minute ago. Do I trust God to supply all of my needs, or do I buy life insurance? Do I plan for the future or simply fall back on his promises? Does God even need us, or should I just sit down and let God do whatever it is that he's going to do? I want to suggest to you this morning, and if you're kind of keeping track of what we're doing here. This is the thought I want you to have in your mind as we read some verses together and as we talk about this, that God always accomplishes his purposes and often he uses us to do it. God always accomplishes his purpose, but he often uses us to do it. We're going to see this illustrated in a few verses from Ezra, but I need to get you caught up on what's happening with Israel because a lot has happened since last week. Right? Does anybody remember anything that happened in the past week in your life? Nobody? Okay, then I'm not even going to ask if you remember what I was talking about in church last week. I'm not going to go down that painful road. A lot has happened since last week. In fact, 450 years have passed since last Sunday's message. Because last Sunday, we were talking about Solomon whose father, King David, remember Tim talked two weeks ago about David, the warrior king, the one who had conquered the then known world, who had all things in his hands because God had put it there. And he had conquered the world, and David said, I want to build you a house. And God said, you're not going to build me a house. And David said, but what I will do is I'll gather all the materials, and I'll give my son Solomon a mandate to build a temple so that we have a beautiful, honoring, fit place to worship you, God. And God said, yes, that's what I want you to do. And so last week we talked about the fact that Solomon built this temple. He spent years and by our standards, hundreds of millions of dollars to build this beautiful place to worship God. 
Last week we talked about some of the promises that God gave to Israel as they dedicated that temple. Well, 450 years have passed, and Israel has collapsed. They've gone from the most powerful, most influential nation of the time to slavery. Idolatry and rebellion and immorality have led to their destruction. Some of you may recognize the name Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, crushed Israel. He destroyed them. Jerusalem and that beautiful temple are gone. They're flattened. Israel's best and brightest young people have been captured and hauled off to Babylon and enslaved. You know some of their names. Daniel. How many people know the name Daniel? Daniel was living in Israel when King Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed it, and he was hauled off to Babylon. You might also know Hananiah and Azariah and Mishael. Sometimes we call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were hauled off out of Israel when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it and taken to Babylon. And their stories are recorded there in the book of Daniel. Israel was finished. All of this that we've been talking about in these first 14 books, it's over. Or is it? Fifty years after Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Israel and took the Israelites captive and enslaved them, he and Babylon were no more. They were gone, off the scene. Cyrus of Persia was in control. And this is what's happening when we come to Ezra chapter 1. And listen to this verse, because I want you to see what is happening here behind the scenes. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1 says this, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, And rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Now let me just tell you, that sounds like just a really boring snippet of history. And I can tell because I could hear the snoring while I was starting to read it. But... It's really important because Cyrus decrees this ungodly, idolatrous king decrees that they should go back and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Now, the first half of the book of Ezra, the first six or seven chapters, are all about these two generations of exiles returning to their land. And it's not pretty It's rough. If you read these chapters, it's a mess. And they have a very, very difficult time. But in the end, they do indeed rebuild the temple. And if we're reading here, we see that the people of God, the chosen people of Israel, rebuild the temple 
because this pagan king allowed it. Now, I don't know if you're keeping track, but typically the pagan kings were warring against Israel, and they were trying to stop them from worshiping, and they were trying to keep them from being in the land where God wanted them to be. But this pagan king is saying, go back and rebuild it. Go back and get set up. Build your temple so that you can worship your God. There's another thing that's very interesting that's here in this passage, and that is it says here that this proclamation he made, that he put it in writing. And I know that sometimes you may wonder about the historical accuracy of the Bible, or you may have people that you talk to, friends or family members, who think you're slightly unhinged for believing and trusting and reading a book that's several thousand years old. And they may say, why would you read that old book of stories? Well, it says here that Cyrus put his proclamation in writing. And did you know that in 1789, when archaeologists were working over in the Middle East, they found a clay tablet. And do you know what they found? They found a tablet that said, This is the decree of Cyrus of Persia, that all of the exiles should go back and rebuild their houses of worship. The Bible says Cyrus decreed it and he put it in writing. And guess what? History bears out that fact. That piece of archaeology is residing in a museum in London right now. If you could get on a plane and you were allowed to travel to other places, which you're not, so don't try it, but if you could, you could fly to London and you could see this from thousands of years ago. So we can be grateful for this benevolent king, pagan but benevolent. Cyrus allowed the people to go back and rebuild the temple. And yet, what did we read in those verses? It says, Cyrus makes the decree because the Lord stirred his heart. The Lord prompted Cyrus to make this proclamation. It says, so that his prophecy would be fulfilled. Jeremiah, years before this, had said, when Israel gets carried off, they're going to return. And God looked down, and he saw his people, and he saw the destroyed temple, and he moved this pagan king's heart and caused him to send the Israelites back. So we read this passage, and what do we see? We see that Cyrus was the one who did it, and yet we see that God is the one who did it. He used Cyrus. Now, for all of us, We should know that the destruction of Jerusalem and the scattering of the people of Israel was not the end of the story. Everybody that's here that has been here at all in the past three or four months as we've worked our way through this first third of the Bible should know that that was not the end. How do we know that this is not the end? Because God has made promises to Abraham And Moses and David, what did those promises tell us? The very first Sunday that we did this series, Pastor Tim went to the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible. He helped us turn to Genesis chapter 12. And what did God say to Abraham there? He said, Abraham, I'm going to make your family great. 
Abraham, I'm going to bless every family in the history of the world by your family. I'm going to multiply the people in your family. In chapter 15, he says, so that they're like the sand of the seashore, the stars of the heavens. And what did he promise David? He said, David, I want you to know this. Somebody from your family will be sitting on the throne of the world for all of eternity. So we knew this wasn't the end. It couldn't be the end because God had made these promises. And God has purposed to glorify himself and display his grace by redeeming people. And the continuation of this family would result in the birth of the Messiah to fulfill these promises. So his purpose could not be thwarted by Nebuchadnezzar, even though he was a powerful guy, and even though he had a big army, and even though he wanted to crush Israel, it wouldn't be done. And so, 50 years after Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, God prompted Cyrus to march across the world and destroy everything in its path, including Nebuchadnezzar, to set this up. Why did that happen? It happened because God desired it, because God purposed it. God used an ungodly, idolatrous king to defeat another ungodly, idolatrous king and send them back to set up the city. And so that's what they did. They rebuilt the temple. They got it all built, this first wave in the first half of Ezra. And then things stalled. And 50 years went by, and this new temple just sat there with nothing going on. And then Ezra is going to lead another wave back. And I want to read you this verse in Ezra 7 and verse 6. Ezra went up from Babylon. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given him. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. So Ezra is sitting in Babylonia, in Babylon, even though Cyrus is in charge now, he was still in Babylon, and he says, I'm going to go back, and I'm going to put that new temple to use. Now, why was Ezra qualified to do that? Because it says he was a scribe. He was skilled in the law of Moses. What does that tell us? It tells us that even though hundreds of years had gone by, even though they were not in their land, even though things were very bleak, even though they could not worship in the place that they usually worship, that tells us that Ezra still took the law of God and he knew it very well. Why does that matter? You're saying there, why are we talking about this? This happened thousands of years ago. What difference does this make? My friends, it makes all the difference in the world because it tells us that even though we watch the news and we flip on our laptops and our phones and we look around and everything looks bleak and everything is turned up on its head and we're not worshiping in the place that we usually worship, we can still take the Word of God and know it and apply it to our hearts and lives and do what is right. We don't have to stop. I've talked to many people over the last few weeks, the last few months, and I've said, it's just not the same. Because we got to come here, and we got to sit in a camp chair, or you got to sit in your car. Come on, folks. So what? We don't even have a church building when things are normal. We're meeting in a school. Who cares? It doesn't matter where we are. 
What matters is that we have the Word of God, and He has called us to live lives that are honoring to Him. Who cares if we're sitting in a camp chair or a theater chair in the high school? Why does it matter? And Ezra knew that. He understood that principle. And even though everything was bleak around him, he still knew the Word. It says he was skilled in the law of Moses. Let me ask you something. How many... How many classes do you think were going on in Babylon after 450 years of slavery to help to train Ezra in what he should know about Moses' law? Not many, maybe none. But he had the word, and he knew what was right, and he knew what needed to be done. So he said, I'm going back. I'm going to set all of this up. I'm going to lead worship in the temple. So Ezra plans for the return, he prepares for the reforms, and I'm not going to read all the verses for you, but he puts out a call for volunteers. Who wants to go back with me and do this and set up the worship? We got this temple. We don't have to be here. Cyrus has said we can go. Let's go. Who wants to go and get organized? And so Ezra 8.15 says this, I gathered them, that is the volunteer. There were people who volunteered. Can you imagine people volunteered? I think that's why everybody has kept moving further back every Sunday. I can tell two things. Number one, you're getting more comfortable with being here, so you're moving further and further away. And number two, you're afraid you're going to get asked to do something, I guess. Everybody keeps moving back, but there were actually volunteers. And so Ezra gathers them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. And I reviewed the people and the priests, and I found that there were none of the sons of Levi. Okay, let me explain something here. The Levites were the ones who took care of all of the temple worship, the priests. Levi was one of the sons of Jacob, and when God put them into the promised land, or when he established the law, rather, before even that, the promised land, he said, everybody from this family, this is where all the priests are going to come from, the family of Levi. And it says that he had some priests who volunteered, but he didn't have any Levites. What you have to understand is there were two groups. There were the priests who actually performed the sacrifices, who led the people in the worship, and there were the Levites. They were the guys that did all the behind-the-scenes stuff. They were the ones that made all the preparations. I was thinking about our situation here. It's kind of like our setup team in the band. I know most of you know this. Maybe some of you don't, but there's a whole setup team that gets here at 7.30 in the morning and sets all this stuff up. You don't see them because they do it before you get here. And after you leave, they'll tear it all down. You see the band who leads us in worship. And that's what it was with the Levites. There was a whole group of people who made all the preparations and did all the setup. And then the priests led the worship. And he didn't have any setup, guys. Where's Ben? Ben, even Ezra. He struggled to find setup guys. Poor Ben leads a setup team. He's like, that team turns over about every three weeks. He's looking for more people. Ezra didn't have any setup guys. Where's my setup guys? So what does Ezra do? Does he say, well, this is what God wants to do, so I guess God will just do it. No, he picks out some of his sharpest guys. If we were to read the verses, he takes some of his sharpest guys and he sends them back 
to find the people that they needed. Ben, you should feel good about yourself. You're one of our sharpest guys, so we're sending you out to get the setup guys, okay? And that's what Ezra did. He picked some of the cream of the crop and said, you guys go get some Levites. We need some Levites if we're going to do this. What happened? Well, later on in Ezra 8, it says they got the men that they needed. They got 220 setup guys to go with them. Now, why did that happen? Why did they get the setup guys? Because Ezra chose the sharpest guys to go and recruit them? Well, in Ezra 8.18, Ezra says, We got them because the good hand of our God was upon us. But Ezra was the one who went, sent guys to go find them. So did Ezra find them or did God send them? Yes. They got ready to leave on their journey. They made all the necessary preparations. They fasted. They prayed. They asked God to give them safe travel. Then they left and give them a successful journey. And they did have a successful journey. And they did have safe travel. Did they have safe travel because they prepared well or because they prayed for God to give it to them? Yes. When God desires to accomplish his purpose through people, he provides always, always provides the right people at the right time. And when God desires for us to do something, that he wants to accomplish something through us, he always does it. Is it because of our efforts or because of his guidance? Yes. Both. Let's talk for a moment about the sovereignty of God because this is so important for us to understand. We're going to take these few thoughts and just very quickly apply them to our lives today. Why does this matter? The sovereignty of God means that he is in control of this world and he always accomplishes his will. He often uses mankind to accomplish it. That is clear. If you look at your life, if you're a Christ follower, if you have made a practice in your life for some time of walking with God, if you've been a part of this church for very long and you understand how that God has changed people's hearts and lives, then you know that it's clear that God uses us often to accomplish his purpose. What I want you to understand is this, that the sovereignty of God and the initiative of men are concurrent. It's your word of the day. What that means is this. Often the sovereignty of God and the initiative, initiative of men appear to be happening at the same time. Did I do that or did God do that? Did I accomplish it because I was carefully planning or did God accomplish it that because it's what he desired to do? The sovereignty of God and the initiative of men are concurrent. They often appear to be happening at exactly the same time. How is that possible? It's got to be one or the other. God always ensures that his will is done, that his sovereign decree and purpose is accomplished, but he does that without violating the free will that he gives us. This is getting more and more confusing. 
Does God choose us or do I choose God? Yes. Does God open my eyes to understand the truth that I might be saved or do I call upon the name of the Lord to be saved? Yes. God does that, accomplishes his will, and uses the initiative of man without changing the meaningfulness of cause and effect. Well, what does it matter then? If God's going to do this, I can do whatever I want. It's not going to make any difference. It's not going to keep God from doing what he wants to do. I'll just do whatever I want. But God does that without changing the meaningfulness of cause and effect. Does it matter what we do? Does what we do, the decisions we make, make a difference and impact our lives? Of course they do. He does as he wills. He builds his church. His plans are realized. And he lovingly invites us to be involved in the process. Now, how exactly he does this is a mystery in many senses, but it is the consistent teaching of Scripture that this is true. In spite of men's intentions, by the way, what about the people who want to act cruelly? What about the ones who choose to hurt other people? How do you explain that? Well, I know that in the life of Joseph, the second youngest son of Jacob, when he was taken by his brothers and beaten and thrown into a well and then sold into slavery, and yet 20 years later, God used him to save his whole family. Do you know what Joseph said? Do you know what the Scripture says? He said to his brothers, As for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive. In spite of men's intention. Also, we see that God does this in regard to sanctification. Listen to Philippians 2, verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Wait a second. Do I figure out how I'm supposed to live and change my life, or does God change my life? Yes. Both. And most importantly, at the crucifixion of Jesus, listen to Acts chapter 2, verse 23, when Peter preaches his very first sermon. What does Peter say? He says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. God always accomplishes his purpose. And he desires to involve you in the process. This is a consistent teaching of Scripture. What was God doing in Ezra, my friends? What was he doing there? You know what he was doing? He was preserving his people and fulfilling his promises. Why does that matter? 3,000 years later, why does it matter that that's what God was doing in Ezra? It matters because the continuation of that family resulted in the birth of the Messiah who would live a sinless life and die a sacrificial death and rise again three days later and provide salvation for you 
and from me. What's God doing today? God is doing the exact same thing. He is preserving his people, and he is fulfilling his promises. What I can tell you beyond the shadow of a doubt, while I do not know everything that God is doing, and I don't know everything that he is going to do, what I can tell you is this. He will accomplish his purpose. He will preserve his people. And he will provide everything that we need for as long as we need it. He's bringing glory to himself. And he's displaying his grace by redeeming people. He's doing it. He will do it. There is no doubt about that. The question that remains is what about you? God's at work. He's accomplishing his purpose. He's building his church. The question is, will you join God in what he is doing, or will you just sit on the sidelines and drift along down the stream until life ends? That's the question. The question is not, is God going to do this? Is God going to fulfill all these promises? That's not a question. He's going to do it. The question is, will you join him in what he's doing? I'm going to ask you if you would stand with us this morning. We're going to end with a song. It's one that we haven't sung for a little while. It's, one of, it's maybe what we would call an old favorite. Nothing's too old around here at Moss Brook, but if anything's old, this song has been around for a while. As we sing about the greatness of our God and his purpose in this world, ask yourself what God is calling you to do to be involved in what he's doing. This morning for having been together is that all would know of your greatness and all would glorify you, all would praise your name. I pray that you will remind us this morning that you are sovereign, you are over all, and you always accomplish your purpose. Soften the hearts of each person bowed here today as we have gathered cause them to seek what it is that you are asking them to do that we might move that we might work that we might share the truth with those that we come into contact with that we might show your love to people that we might be gracious and merciful and kind to those who are around us that their hearts and attention might be drawn to you Father, we know this is your work, and we humbly thank you for the privilege of being a small part of it. Do as you have planned. Send Jesus Christ to gather his church in your time. Fulfill all that you have designed for this world, that we might one day be in your presence for all of eternity and worshiping at your feet. Thank you for this time and this place. Pray that you will encourage and strengthen us as we go out into what you have for us this week. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for coming, folks. Hope you have a great day. Anytime a heart turns from darkness to light, 
Anytime temptation comes and someone stands to fight Anytime somebody lives to serve and not be served